Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode, I chat with Daniel Quick, a leading business litigator and partner with the law firm of Dickinson Wright. Dan discusses his successful litigation and trial of a non-compete case against celebrity chef Matt Prentice. Dan talks about the fascinating facts of this case and the interesting opinion from business court judge Michael Warren. Dan also offers insights on handling contentious business cases and on the state of non-compete legislation and litigation nationwide. I hope you enjoy this interview. Daniel Quick, welcome to the Litigation War Room podcast. Glad to be here, Max. Thank you. I'm glad to have you here, Dan. I'm I'm excited to talk to you about a um, number of things, but in particular, particular case that you handled that was well known at least here in the Detroit area, and where you and your team got a great result. But before that, I'd I'd like to hear, and I know our listeners would like to hear just a bit about you and your practice and your firm. So, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. So have been with Dickinson Wright here in the Detroit area for going on 30 years. I'm one of the rarities in terms of a lawyer uh, joining and staying with the same firm for the entire career. But it's been a great firm. They've always treated me well, and uh, they haven't kicked me out yet. So um, here I am. I uh, primarily practice commercial litigation, which of course is a, a broad umbrella. But I've also had the opportunity to do a fair amount of entertainment litigation, intellectual property litigation, and uh, like every other lawyer in Detroit, a good bit of auto supplier litigation as well. Well, Dan, I know you have a very broad and varied practice, but I think of you as having a reputation in particular in Michigan as a business tort lawyer. Maybe it's because of your Michigan business torts book that I know you co-author that I've got on my shelf and that I, I actually refer to pretty frequently. It's a really terrific resource for anybody handling shareholder disputes, trade secret disputes, non-compete disputes, that kind of thing in the, the Detroit area. So that's a great resource. Yeah, Ed Pappas deserves a lot of credit for that. He wrote the first one when I was just a young pup. And then I had the pleasure of working a lot with that over the years and brought me on as a co-author. And we just put out the, the latest edition of that last year in the middle of the pandemic. And yeah, it's, it's been a good resource. And you know, it's interesting because time to time I'll get calls from judges out of the blue saying, hey, I have some case that involves this issue and your book says X, Y, and Z. What do you think? Um, wow. The, the key to the book is to always have co-authors so that if somebody tries to quote the book against you, you can, <laughs> you can blame it on one of your co-authors who clearly didn't know what they were talking about. Exactly. And there's three of you. So nobody can ever pin down who is responsible for this or that, right? Exactly. And I also know that you're really active in the bar in a number of different organizations. Um, it seems like, again, our, our audience is national, but of course I'm based in Detroit, as are you and a lot of our listeners are based in Michigan. But it seems like you're there at every bar event. I know that you are involved in a number of committees. I believe you're on, I think you hold a position with the Michigan State Bar. I think you're president of the Oakland County Bar Association. I think you're involved with the ABA as well. So... Can you fill us in a little more? Tell, tell our listeners where I got it wrong and, and tell us a little bit more just about your involvement uh, with the bar and how you've kind of given back to the legal profession in that way. Yeah, no, you got it just right. And um, giving back is exactly the right way to put it. It's not purely altruistic. I'm, I'm a big believer in bar associations as a way to serve our clients better and to do our jobs better. 
by getting to know the courts, by getting to know our, our fellow practitioners, it makes life a lot easier. It's not a guarantee of anything, but when somebody's a stranger to you, it's a lot easier for them to be a jerk. But when we right, all um, right. know each other face to face and we've broken bread together, it can really help make life a little bit easier. So on uh, the American Bar Association, I'm on the uh, governing council of the sectional litigation. So that's the largest group of lawyers in the country. And folks are probably familiar with all the great things that the ABA does and the resources it provides to lawyers really throughout the world. Currently in the State Bar of Michigan, I am the vice president, and I've been involved in various ways over the decades. And as you mentioned, I was also the president of our local bar association here, the Oakland County Bar, and I'm involved in our federal bar. And it's a very rewarding thing. I'm able to do a lot of good work that I, I hope um, helps improve uh, the justice system. And, you know, look, none of us really signed up for this job just to answer interrogatories, um, you know, and, and do the nine to five. So participating in, in a broader way and in a deeper way in our justice system is, is always something that's been attractive to me. Oh, absolutely. And I know your work is very much worthwhile and greatly appreciated, and I'm sure very uh, rewarding and interesting for you. And um, again, just for context for our listeners outside of, of Michigan, the Detroit area has two or three major counties, and Oakland County is sort of on the north side of Detroit, and there's a lot of business in Detroit, and we actually have a, an excellent business court here in the Detroit area in Oakland County. So you are the president of the Oakland County Bar Association, and I know are involved in, in the OCB way and a number of other ways as well. Right. In the business courts, uh, Wayne has an excellent business court. Uh, some of the other counties do. Wayne is where Detroit is located. And uh, that, that has certainly helped the, the business cases here. That's probably a topic for another podcast, but uh, there's a small number of judges in each county who get all of the business cases. And so, you know, those relationships become particularly important. Well, that's probably just as good of a place as any to transition to talking about a particular case that you've handled. And Dan, I know you've handled a number of, of uh, high profile and high stakes cases, but I want to drill down on one in particular that you had in front of Judge Michael Warren. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, this case is from 2013. Is that before there was a business court in Oakland County? It had to be right around the time that it was formed. Yes, I think it's before the business court. But Judge Warren is now one of the two business courts in uh, in Oakland County, and he's got a reputation as being a, a very scholarly judge who writes very careful, well-reasoned, and uh, legally well-supported opinions. Um, in this case, he wrote a 50-page <laughs> opinion following what I understand was a bench trial in this case. Correct. So this involved not the most amount of dollars by any stretch, but a very important matter for our client. The defendant is an individual named Matt Prentice, who sadly has passed away recently. Yeah, I saw that just earlier this year. He, he died, right? Yeah, it, really sad. Um, because he, he was not that old, which gets easier for me to say every year. But So back in the day, uh, Matt Prentice was the closest thing that Detroit ever had to a celebrity chef. He had successfully opened up a number of restaurants which were regarded as top-end restaurants, both here in the Detroit area, but recognized nationally. He also ran some very successful catering businesses, particularly in our Jewish community, and was an innovative guy. He was a doer, and he was always moving. But at one point in time, the empire had outgrown his ability to really manage it, and he had had some financial difficulties and brought my client in as a backer. 
And to make a long story short, the quid pro quo for that financial backing was that, okay, Matt, you're going to run the empire, but I need to make sure you're loyal. So we signed an employment agreement that essentially had a non-compete in it that said that Matt would commit all of his activities to this endeavor. And that seemed to go okay for a number of years until it didn't. And on the cusp of opening up a few new restaurants, including a new version of the Golden Mushroom, which is one of the most famous restaurants in Detroit history, Mr. Prentice um, decided or was alleged that he um, had decided to go out on his own. And he started dealing with the landlords on his own. He set up a new company secretly. He solicited a number of key employees. He took over portions of the operation himself. And in the process of doing so, took over the equipment and everything else along with it and really just thought he could slap a new name on his business and some of these ventures and and walk away. My client, who is a smart guy and uh, both a businessman and an attorney, was not going to let that happen. So we ended up in litigation in Oakland County that ultimately resulted in a about a seven-day bench trial in front of Judge Warren, um, reviewing, as a lot of these cases tend to do, you know, a good decade of, of history in terms of the party's involvement and, and things that had happened over that time. Now, backing up just a bit, so the case is called Best Team Ever, Inc. at all v. Matthew K. Prentice at all, I believe. Uh, from what I saw um, just in preparing for this podcast, it looked like there were 16 plaintiffs and 12 defendants. Is it safe to assume these were all the various entities that operated the, the various restaurants, both on the plaintiff side and then the ones on the defendant side that had been newly launched by Prentice. Correct. Yeah, there were special purpose entities set up um, for each of the restaurants. And then there were a few sort of overarching uh, management companies that provided various services and they were parties as well. Your client was this group of entities, but also an individual named Stanley Dixon. And he was basically an investor who decided to buy out Matt Prentice after, as you said, his empire started crumbling. I think that's the language you used. And this was following the 2009 economic crisis. Is that right? That certainly didn't help. And so it was uh, mid-2009 when Mr. Prentice approached Mr. Dixon and and asked to uh, essentially bail him out. Um, and, And that's when they formed their partnership. Right. And can you tell us a little bit more about the deal that they struck. I mean, I know the basics of it are that he signed an agreement that gave control or ownership of his entities to your client and this collection of companies. And I I know there were some very strong pledges that he had to make of devoting himself um, and his talents to these companies in addition to the non-compete. Can you tell us just a little more, fill that out a little more for us about the nature of that that agreement? Sure. So Matt was, in addition to being very talented, a proud man. And rightfully so. And it was important for him to be able to keep the forward face, public face of his restaurants to stay in charge in both form and in title. But there were a lot of problems. There were taxes outstanding. There were uh, all sorts of creditors. It was clear that new cash was going to have to be put in in order to avoid foreclosure. There were lenders who, who were threatening foreclosure, et cetera. And so the request for Dixon really did have a a pretty significant price tag 
attached to it. And as I mentioned, the the main ask uh, back, in addition, of course, to security agreements and that sort of thing, was to make sure that Prentice was 100% committed to this deal. And there were some pretty tough negotiations that went on between the two of them. My client had prepared an employment agreement, which had a lot of restrictions. And as Judge Warren's opinion quotes, uh, at one point, Prentice um, said to Dixon, quote, it is one of the most oppressive agreements I've ever seen, end quote. And to which Dixon responded, you're right. It gives me the right to, and I'll omit some profanity. Um, but it was making clear that was exactly the point. He said that in advance, right? This wasn't sour grapes after. He said it in advance, and then he signed it. Right. And, and that was really critical to ultimately what Judge Warren decided, because, of course, as we litigated the case in 2013, the claim was that it was somehow oppressive or fraudulent or should be set aside. And, you know, Judge Warren essentially said, look, you're a big boy. You're a sophisticated party. You're not just some line chef. And you were told flat out you recognized what it was and you were told flat out what it involved. And you agreed to do it. And so we're going to hold you to that contract. And obviously, that was you know an important theme for us throughout the case, that the celebrity darling, the businessman, the celebrity chef, all, all these things mean that he has to be responsible for the agreement he signed. Now, Dan, if you could fill our listeners in just quickly about non-compete law in Michigan, as listeners may know. Non-compete law varies from state to state, going from all the way from some states, Michigan being one of them, being very pro-non-compete, or take Florida, which I think maybe even more pro-non-compete than Michigan, on one end of the spectrum, all the way to states like California on the other end, which have a virtual ban on non-competes. Maybe I just answered my own question, but can you fill listeners in a little bit more just about the kind of the legal environment for those seeking to enforce or those seeking to get out of non-competes in Michigan? Sure. So Michigan has a statute that follows the common law rule of reason that had been applied to non-competes back before a lot of states started adopting statutes. And it looks to whether or not there's a reasonable competitive business interest to uh, underline and support the non-compete. And one of the areas that non-competes are often recognized, uh, both under common law and under the modern versions of the jurisprudence, is when there is a sale of a business involved. And there's a recognition, and this is a perfect example of it, that Matt Prentice is the face of these businesses. Everybody understood these were Matt Prentice's restaurants. In fact, at one point, the corporate entities had his name involved with it. So to make sure that he stays on board and is loyal to those ventures, even though from an ownership perspective, he no longer controls them, was critically important and is precisely the type of interest that Michigan courts recognize and will uphold. And this non-compete was five years, and he was barred from five years basically from competing in the restaurant industry in the same areas where his restaurants were located. No, that's right. And it was it was a fairly broad provision. It was uh, five years non-solicitation in terms of customers and employees and vendors and all that sort of thing, in addition to traditional non-competition provisions. Five years in an employment context is a very long time, and not many courts would uphold that sort of a provision. But there's plenty of case law in Michigan that goes back basically a century, that says sale of a business is something different. 
And there, there certainly is case law upholding non-competes for that period of time, because you really don't want to have a situation where somebody sells the business, gets all the benefit of that transaction, and then still is able to go out in the marketplace on his or her own and seize that goodwill for themselves away from from the current owner. So it was five years. And and ultimately, one of the things that was in the agreement that Judge Warren relied upon in his verdict was a provision where Prentice recognized that the restrictions were, in fact, reasonable as to duration, as to geographic scope, etc. And that's one of the types of things that Judge Warren looked to in terms of the totality of circumstances saying, yes, this is reasonable under these circumstances. And oh, by the way, Prentice, you even agreed in writing that you thought it was reasonable as well. Now, that was an interesting point. Um, Very commonly in in non-compete agreements, certainly in my experience when I've drafted them and litigated them, that kind of language is pretty common in a non-compete, you know, an agreement. It's not universal, but you see it with some frequency where the the person agreeing to the non-compete agrees that it's reasonable and agrees that the plaintiff will be entitled to injunctive relief in the event of a violation of the non-compete. And I think it would be easy to view those as almost throwaway phrases. And I can't say it's very often that one sees a judge give a lot of weight to those clauses. And yet in this case, reading through the opinion, um, Judge Warren gave a lot of weight to both of those things. He went through the analysis, but he also said, he said right here in black and white, and he's a sophisticated business person who's been around the block, that it's reasonable and that they get an injunction if I violate this thing. Particularly in non-compete cases, the specifics of the situation make a big difference. And you're exactly right, Max. The fact that Warren really found that Prentice knew what he was getting into, knew that it was restrictive, and agreed to it, that weighed heavily in terms of the ultimate finding. Is it outcome determinative? No. But there is case law that that supports that those sort of clauses do have some validity. Where they, they tend to peter out is in a preliminary injunction context. Because there, of course, you're asking the court to exercise its equitable authority, and the court's going to make its own mind up as to what the situation before it calls for, although it's still always a point to note if you have it. But here, I think precisely because of this very express negotiation process up front in this colorful language that was employed to characterize exactly how meaningful these restrictions were, that it's something that that did make sense for Judge Warren to focus on. Right. And I do want to talk more about the relief that Judge Warren granted. But before we get there, what did Prentice do that basically provoked this litigation? I mean, reading through the opinion, it seemed like it was doing a little more than just opening up a restaurant, though that in itself, you know, (laughs) presumably would have been an issue for your client. But it seemed a little more extreme than that. Well, what we ended up discovering, and of course, that's always half the battle because these things are not all out in the open is that sometime in 2012, Prentice had decided to seek out a new backer. He didn't want to work with Dixon anymore. He had to go to Dixon and ask, you know, mother, may I, anytime he wanted to spend significant funds. And he often got approval. In fact, they ended up spending a lot of money to build out this new restaurant that they were going to do. But he really just wanted to go on his own. But rather than negotiate for a divorce, he decides to go have an affair. So he starts flirting with another local businessman here in town. 
who had been a, a defendant at one point in this case, and then was uh, a settlement was reached on that, and started trying to talk him into being a backer. And over a period of time, he started making statements in the press about the restaurants. He started retaining a few of the people, key employees on his own. He started going to some of the key customers, for example, on the catering business, slowly transitioning that business essentially over to himself. I think the straw that broke the camel's back and and that was really obvious was that, oh, and I said Golden Mushroom previously at some morels um, was the the new restaurant that he was going to open. But that was essentially set to open in early 2012. And at the last minute, Mr. Prentice essentially sent a letter saying, uh, yeah, I'm going to open it, but I'm going to open on my own and you're going to have nothing to do with it. And it's all ours. I mean, it was obviously a complete declaration of war. So, you know, at that point, uh, my client wasn't in the business of running restaurants. He wasn't in the business of running catering operations. That's what Mr. Prentice was supposed to do. So it put him in a very bad situation to try to pick up the shards of, of what was left. And at the same time, he was very mindful that he didn't necessarily want to put out some of these community players, Temple Israel, for example is a big part of the Jewish community here in Southeast Michigan. And they had this longstanding catering relationship. And it wasn't like we wanted to go in and shut them down. So there were a lot of different things in play there in the early going. And ultimately, we just decided to hunker down and, and just litigate the case down to a verdict. Also, I thought it was interesting, in addition to some of the facts and allegations you just recited, I noticed there was a conversion claim and a claim and delivery claim. Tell us a bit about that. There was some physical property at issue too? Well, a lot of these facilities had equipment, pots and pans and stoves and catering trucks and all sorts of things. And some of them are on site uh, at some of these facilities. And obviously they're on site at the restaurants. And when Prentice did what he did, which was essentially just say, all of that is mine and I'm going to run it now. He was, to use the legal buzzword, exercising dominion and control over things that he didn't own. Uh, They clearly were owned by the corporate entities associated with each of those businesses. And so it was one of the relatively rare business tort cases uh, that you get to allege conversion, which in Michigan, uh, depending on your proofs, you have the ability to obtain trouble damages. And so Conversion is is every plaintiff's counsel's favorite tort to allege if you can find a way to do it because trouble damages puts the fear of God into people. But it's often harder to do than people think. But this was a case where uh, we actually had the facts because he, he literally had just bundled everything up and said, nope, that's mine, and tried to operate his businesses with it. You know, another question, and I hope listeners will indulge me, but I'm kind of a non-compete geek. I I litigate these cases and and really enjoy them. So I'm going to ask another question. Um, There was uh, an interesting defense in this case that the individual investor had allegedly breached fiduciary duties against Prentice. What was that all about? So it had a few pieces to it. One is, and I mentioned earlier that Mr. Dixon is actually an attorney and he's an accountant and he is a businessman. And so seizing upon those degrees, if you will, 
uh, Prentice and his attorneys crafted defense trying to argue that, well, gee, since Mr. Dixon is an attorney and an accountant, he owed fiduciary duties to Mr. Prentice and in some form or fashion had violated them. So there was this interesting legal argument up front as to whether or not there was, in fact, such a fiduciary relationship. And in the end, it turned out not to be too difficult to defeat. Mr. Prentice had his own lawyers. Mr. Dixon had his own lawyers. In fact, at one point when they were negotiating these agreements, Dixon made sure to tell Prentice, uh, and it was admitted by Prentice, that you've got to go get your own lawyer. And if you need a referral for somebody, you know, I'll give you a name who's not my lawyer, but I will give you a name. And so it, it became clear, I think, to the judge that these very broad stroke assertions of, of a fiduciary relationship, once they were examined, just really didn't hold up. Now, tell us, Dan, about the result that was achieved. We know Judge Warren ruled in your client's favor, it seems like on almost every claim. Tell us about the result of the case. It was one of the fewer cases that you get to litigate where you do essentially get a clean sweep in terms of the relief that you requested. Of course, the most important part to the client at some level was the injunctive relief. He really had invested a lot of money into these restaurants and catering operations and businesses. He recognized that he would need to continue to run them uh, in order to obtain value out of them at some point. And he certainly could not have Matt Prentice in the way involving himself in these relationships. And so the court enforced the non-compete down to the letter for the full five years. And that really became important in terms of being able to pick up the pieces and, and try to make the best of this. There were a number of damages components. There was a liquidated damages provision in the agreement for half a million dollars. There were lost profits on particular jobs because Mr. Prentice, when he had jumped ship, had actually taken over some large catering jobs that were in process at the time. And even though we had paid for food, for example, for some of those, he took the revenues from them and kept those for himself. And then there were conversion damages. So we had to put in proofs in terms of the value of these assets. And uh, those damages were troubled. So in the end, there was a, a significant monetary damages award, around $2 million, none of which, interestingly, my client ever actually attempted to collect. Mr. Prentice did appeal the case. That didn't go anywhere. He did abide by his non-compete as to the extent that we know it. Well, and he, and he made a splash five years later when it ran out. I think that was just a couple of years ago. I remember seeing it in the news. Matt Prentice is back and opening new restaurants again. Right. He got involved with a location in Clawson and was working there. And I think he had aspirations of doing some other things uh, before he had passed away. But uh, yeah, my client had, had decided not to really go after him on the monetary relief and he ran the businesses. The, the businesses stayed active for a number of years. There were some, it was rebranded as the Epicurean Group. Uh, a few other locations were opened. And then ultimately, those assets were, were sold off. And so my, my client is no longer in the, in the restaurant business. You know, at the time, Mr. Prentice, I think, was in his uh, maybe upper 50s. He was still a, a relatively young man. And so uh, after five years, he, he did try to come back and obviously carried a lot of goodwill still in this uh, community. 
Well, it's a really interesting case, Dan, and a really great result. And I guess my question for you, if we can just kind of talk about lessons learned from from litigating this case, what's the one thing that attorneys need to know about litigating a non-compete case as opposed to another kind of, I'd say, breach of contract case? And non-competes are breach of contract cases technically, but they often have more of the flavor of a, a tort case. What's one thing that you think everyone needs to understand about litigating non-compete cases? Well, I think at the most basic level, you have to recognize that no matter what case law you may be able to conjure for your side, that at the end of the day, especially in a preliminary injunction context, you are asking an elected official, a judge, to throw somebody out of work or to preclude them from getting a paycheck for that which he or she is trained to do, knows how to do, and has done in the past. At the end, that's a difficult thing for a court to do. They know what the law is, and they will do it when it makes sense to do it, but that's really the key. You can't just rely on the language of the contract or a case that suggests that you ought to win. You need to build the case uh, so that you have the white hat that this person was trusted with confidential information or trusted with being the face of the company in some sales or other capacity, that they've abused that trust by now going out and trying to essentially trade off of it for their own benefit when they contracted that they wouldn't do that. And there are a lot of judges from across the political spectrum who still believe that when you sign a contract, that that contract ought to mean something, especially as between sophisticated parties. If you have a you know very low level employee, there's a, there's some unfortunate cases, Max, that I know you know of, where Subway you know had non competes for its sandwich makers or Jimmy John's, I should say, and you know the, there are instances of companies using them where they really ought not be used, and and that's left a bad taste in in some people's mouths, but. They do have a place in the business world, and I think you need to understand the full context of your client's business and what this person did and how they left and why they left and what they did to be able to present yourself and your client as having the white hat. That's always the, the position you want to be in. Well, that is some great advice, and you're, you're right. Non-competes are widely abused. Very often, they're very poorly drafted and uh, enforced in inappropriate contexts and in inappropriate ways. But I have to agree with you. It's certainly a valid and valuable and legally recognized tool, and especially in a context like you see in this case where, where it's you know, a sophisticated business person who knows what he's getting into and gets value in return for signing it. That certainly makes sense, and, and obviously you, you persuaded Judge Warren that it made sense to enforce it to the letter against the defendant here. Well, this is a topic that comes up from time to time nationally as well as locally in terms of whether states ought to be as open to non-competes as they are. Uh, This was a big topic when President Obama was in the White House and got um, some traction then, and it comes up from time to time. But with a few exceptions and a few jurisdictions, the law is still the same. Uh, Non-competes are generally enforceable. But I think that courts are perhaps a little bit more skeptical, if that's the right word, or at least demanding in terms of the equities uh, before they will enforce them, because they do recognize people have a right to work in this country, and they have a right to use their general skills and knowledge. And so I think that in a, in a roundabout way, they've been educated 
about the yin and yang of non-competes as they strive to do the right thing in equity. Well, Dan, these insights are really interesting. The case is fascinating, and the, 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 the facts certainly are juicy. Well, and Judge Warren, of course, is a great writer. And so when you read this opinion, he subheadings like one would have uh, on a menu. And he's done this in other cases. Uh, whatever the subject matter is, he tries to incorporate it somewhat into the way he uh, writes. So the introduction is subtitled, or the food critic summary. And then the next section is the causes of action. And it says, or the ingredients, and so on and so on. So it, it's uh, entertaining reading, if nothing else. It's entertaining reading, and apart from the headings, um, it is crystal clear. You get the facts that you need, you get the legal analysis, and it's very clear and direct, bold prose that at the end, if all you have to go by is the opinion, um, it certainly seems to compel the result. Well, Dan, I appreciate your time. Thank you for appearing on the podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Where can listeners find you if they want to learn more about you and your practice? Well, it's been my pleasure, Max. Thank you. Uh, DickinsonWright.com is the easiest way. We're a large law firm. We have offices all over the country and in Canada. Um, but you can always find my information on the website. And uh, certainly if you're local here, people know how to find me. Well, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again for appearing on the Litigation War Room. Max, thank you. Hey, guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Ford's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in LA? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Forts Legal has you covered. I use Forts Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting-edge technology and best-of-class resources, Forrest Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Forrest Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at ForrestLegal.com. That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com. Or call 844-730-4066. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them and not those of the litigation war room.